0: Today on Understanding Immigration, the American Refugee Program.
1: At this point, the refugee program we have is nothing more than a self-righteous pat on our own back on the international scale, because we're doing very little to help improve the situation in those countries. In
2: terms of actually helping people that are going through You know, the collapse of a state government who have faced genocide, these kinds of things that we associate with refugees, it doesn't really do anything.
0: We can help way more people if we were to reframe how we address the refugee resettlement program, if we readdress how we're meant to see the refugee crisis around the world. Is it really about helping people? And if that's the case, let's find a better way to do so.
1: Coming Coming to you from from Washington,
0: Washington, D.C., you are now listening to FAIRS, Mm -hmm.
1: Understanding Immigration Podcast. All right. Welcome back to another episode of FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcasts. This is Spencer Raley, FAIR's Director of Research. And today I'm joined by Madison McQueen from my research team and Preston Hennekins from our lobbying department. Now, on May 3rd, President Biden announced a massive increase in the refugee cap. This despite the fact that millions of Americans continue to go unemployed and struggle to care for their own families due to the ongoing economic impact of COVID-19. Also, this decision was not based on the advice of his experts or particular driving need or a new war humanitarian issue overseas. Rather, it was simply another situation where the administration caved to excessive external pressure from the open borders lobby. Over the past decade, the refugee cap has ranged from anywhere from 15,000 all the way up to 85,000. And in the past, it's grown to as much as 240,000. Obviously, all of these drastic changes can lead to confusion for the American people. What goes into the decisions that drive the refugee cap up or down? What's the ideal number? How does our program compare to other programs around the world? These are all questions that we hope to address in this episode. So Preston, I wanna start with you. Tell us more about the recent change to the refugee cap and why the Biden administration suddenly changed their mind and how did they arrive to this particular number?
2: Right, so most of Biden's immigration moves can be characterized uh, essentially as doing the exact opposite of what uh, former President Trump did regardless of the effects uh, or consequences And their decision to change the refugee ceiling is no different. Um, You know, it's important to remember that resettlement as it's applied today is not really, you know, a life saving last resort for refugees. You know, we know I think this has been shown in year after year of data from the U.N. that, you know, about 80 percent of them are in normal circumstances. They're not people who are truly fleeing for their lives in many respects, they look a lot like people coming from um, south of our border and applying for asylum. They're people who the situation at home is not great, but it's not the worst thing in the world. Their government hasn't collapsed. As you mentioned, there's no, you know, there aren't really any, you know, global wars occurring right now. And so this goes back to the Trump administration, where the Trump administration took this information from their experts. They had looked at it and they said, you know, our... Our current ceiling does not need to be as high as it is for for what we are doing. And so they set it at 15,000, which I believe was still the highest, really, of any developed country that was accepting refugees at the time. And naturally, opponents of President Trump lost their minds. They said this was a dereliction of our duty as one of the strongest countries in the world, as a a country that has traditionally had a very robust uh, refugee program. Um, But again, even with this 15,000 number, we were still taking in um, generally more more refugees than most other developed countries. And so now Biden comes into office um, on January 20th, 2021, and he doesn't touch the refugee number for a while. And then he had substantial pressure from his allies in Congress, um, from the media, from um, universities uh, and from the nonprofit advocacy sector uh, that really supported his presidency, supported his campaign, he had enormous pressure from them to raise the ceiling from the Trump level of 15,000 um, to something else. And so it's also important to remember not only are these outside allies and these outside groups pressuring him to raise the number, um, but members of his own staff are. Uh, who by and large are significantly more um, to the left of him on the immigration issue. Remember, these are all people that campaigned for him. Uh, By and large, they come from a different generation of Democratic politics than he does, um, despite working for him. And so, you know, there's a lot of internal pressure as well for him to raise this cap. And so, incredibly, um, he actually announces on May 3rd, that no, he, he actually isn't gonna raise the cap. He's just gonna keep it at the Trump level. And he kind of you know dusted his hands off and moved on. And then everyone in democratic politics uh, completely lost their mind when he said this. And so next thing you know, you have his allies in Congress that are blasting him um, and essentially suggesting that Joe Biden, President Joe Biden is continuing and fulfilling Donald Trump's immigration policies. Um, which, you know, God forbid, of course, he couldn't do that. So, you know, he's the Democratic president. He can't do that. So even even the Trump policies that have worked have to be overturned um, in his eyes. And so within a few hours, uh, Joe Biden's White House has released a statement clarifying that they're going to raise it to over 62,000 people. Uh, and it really was a remarkable episode. Uh, and it really just illustrates how beholden Biden is to these groups and, uh, you know, to these, you know, to the universities, to, um, you know, members of the mainstream media, to, uh, you know, a lot of these immigration nonprofit organizations that he has drawn from for staff and and things of that nature. Uh, And so it really just kind of illustrated that, You know, Joe Biden might not necessarily be in charge when it comes to setting refugee policy, uh, even though it is largely up to him as the president of the United States um, um, to do that. You know, I, I think what's so
1: troubling to me is that, like you mentioned, this was not based on the advice of experts. It was literally based on orange man bad theory. He announced that the data suggested Trump's policies were indeed what was best for America at this time. That's what his experts told him. That's what they reviewed and decided, hey, this should stay as it is. And then reverse course simply because the anti-Trump crowd howled about it. You know, just because Trump did something doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best course of action. But when the entirety of your public policy uh, approach is... Let's see what Trump didn't automatically assume it was wrong and do the opposite no matter what the science says, no matter what the data says, no matter what experts say. It's ultimately going to end up a recipe for disaster. And like you mentioned, so many in this country like to suggest that it's inhumane that we don't accept more refugees. And, you know, we've heard that all throughout the Trump administration. We heard that throughout the Obama administration. Uh, some have gone so far as to say there should be no cap. We should just take as many as we can fly into the country. And these individuals often point to other countries as an example of how the United States to do better. So Madison, maybe detail a little bit. How does our refugee program compare to other countries, especially other westernized countries?
0: Well, historically, the U.S. has led the world in terms of formal refugee resettlement. We accept more refugees annually than any other country, and we have one of the most generous programs in the Western world. In 2016, the U.S. accepted 96,900 refugees, and in fact, the U.S. was listed as the top resettlement submission and destination country for 2017, 2018, and 2019, all while underneath these Trump lower caps. The U.S. admitted over 29,000 individuals into the country in 2019. And according to um, the U.N. Refugee Agency, there was 21,159 refugee submissions to the United States. Comparatively, there were only 9,031 refugee departures for Canada and 5,774 departures for the United Kingdom. So even with President Trump's lower caps, the United States still accepts more refugees than any other country. Um, For 2020, the U.S. government-assisted refugee resettlement targets were 18,000, which was lower than, obviously, our 96,000 for 2016, but that still was far higher than, for example, Canada, whose cap was uh, just over 10,000. Now, of course, COVID affected these numbers, not only for the U.S., but for other countries. And so for 2020, our refugee acceptance was about 11,814 for that year. Beyond accepting refugees for resettlement, the U.S. also grants humanitarian protection through various other means. Uh, We had 46,508 individuals that were granted asylum in 2019, which was a 34% increase from the previous year, whereas for the same year, the U.K. granted asylum to just over 11,000 individuals. Not only do we have the asylum programs, but the U.S. also offers temporary protected status known as TPS two countries facing ongoing armed conflict, um, environmental disasters such as earthquake or hurricanes, epidemic, or any other extraordinary and temporary conditions. TPS is a temporary deferral of removal um, due to these circumstances in a person's or demographic's home country. And currently there are 12 countries who have TPS designation. Biden just instituted TPS designation for Venezuela. So now there's about 300,000 Venezuelan nationals currently residing in the United States who are going to receive temporary legal status and work permits um, through this TPS program. Another program offered by the U.S. um, as humanitarian aid is our Unaccompanied Alien Children Resettlement Program, um, which places unaccompanied alien children, or UACs, into the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Once in custody, these children are put into contact with their parents or guardians or other relatives in the U.S., and the program begins the process of finding suitable sponsors. Often, these sponsors are a parent or close family relative already in the U.S., and until a sponsor is found, the children are provided care and wraparound services in one of the 170 facilities across the United States. In addition to these programs, the United States also has a visa category designed to help victims of abuse called the U-Visa And the U visa is a non-immigrant visa program, it's open to victims of certain criminal activities that happen inside the US, such as domestic violence, and um, these incidents that cause substantial physical or mental abuse. This visa is valid for four years with extensions in specific circumstances, and not only does it help to bring domestic abuse out of the shadows, but it also helps build trust with law enforcement agencies. Um, Congress sets limits for this visa category. However, sponsored family members um, are not included in that cap. So for 2018, there was a total of 17,915 victims and their sponsored family members who are approved for the U visa. Um, so while many people want the U.S. to raise our refugee cap, they're ignoring the many other ways that we provide humanitarian protection outside of just the refugee resettlement program. And they also ignore the fact that we far exceed the refugee admissions of other countries.
1: I think that's really an impressive thing if you think about it you know most countries have a refugee program most of them asylum is rolled into that other humanitarian efforts are rolled into that parole for illegal aliens is rolled into that some have you know an asylum program in addition to their refugee but you're still talking figures that often range between about five thousand and maybe for the upper echelon fifty thousand but if you just kind of do a back-of-the-envelope uh, write-up on how many individuals the United States accept into the, into the country on an annual basis for humanitarian purposes, you're talking hundreds of thousands. And you mentioned you know, TPS is supposed to be a temporary protection from deportation until the situation improves in a home country. but. I mean, anyone who's looked into this knows that hasn't been the case. It's been another avenue for resettlement. These programs are rubber-stamped again and again and again. And I think that's a good point to bring up as well because refugee status, asylee, asylum status, asylum is, a, is often turns into something that's a little more permanent, at least until you know the host country can you know, uh, you know, have a regime change or something that makes it safe for the individual to go home. But initially, the refugee refugee program was not intended to be permanent resettlement. But it's become that. That option has been given, and it's used for another form of permanent resettlement. So again, I think it's it's an extremely unfair accusation to make to suggest that the United States is not pulling our weight on an international scale to help take care of individuals who are victims of unfortunate circumstance. Instead... The ultimate goal of these advocate advocacy groups, these open borders proponents, is to just import more cheap labor into the United States and to try to change the social fabric of the United States to something that is more favorable to their goals. And that, again, is extremely troubling, especially when you're considering the fact that the United States is not only continuing to recover from the economic impacts of COVID-19, but is also spending a tremendous amount of taxpayer dollars on helping mitigate that economic impact. You know, the unemployment rate just came out as 6.1%, and that was a slower-than-expected recovery, but that number, as we all know, is misleading. You know, it's been slow, slower-than-expected improvement, but it is estimated that more than 20% of individuals who work in the lower, who work in lower-tier, lower-income jobs are still without a job. And that's after over 40% of them lost their jobs due to COVID-19. And FAIR has found in some of our previous analysis that almost all refugees work in low-income jobs. In fact, the annual wage for a new refugee to the United States averages out to only about $12 an hour. So those that do find work are taking that work from this pool of low-income opportunity which there are millions of Americans looking for right now. And we've also found that the taxpayer cost is significant as well, up to $80,000 per refugee over their first five years in the country, or roughly $16,000 per year. And again, this is all occurring. This refugee cap is being increased you know, three, four-fold during a time when we're literally passing trillion dollars relief bills for COVID-19. And now we're adding these bills that are $16,000 per person for an additional perhaps 50,000 refugees onto the back of American taxpayers who are struggling to put food on their families' plates due to COVID-19. It's an almost immoral issue if you think about it. You know, it kind of runs against the kind of common sense idea that the United States is first and foremost responsible to making sure that their own citizens are taken care of and able to put food on their families' plates and have a place to sleep at night versus those from other countries. And again, it might be a, a good discussion to have if the United States wasn't doing that already, but we are to the tune of hundreds of thousands of individuals a year. So, Preston, we've Now seeing what our program looks like right now, how it's looked in the past, as well as how it compares to other countries and how it far out, you know, far exceeds what other countries are doing. But what should our refugee program look like today? You know, who should it include? How can we ensure that those who are entering the country are not problematic individuals? And should we be taking in so many refugees during a time when American citizens, like I had mentioned, are struggling to get back on their feet?
2: So, I think this is one of the more interesting debates to have uh, uh, regarding the refugee program is uh, one, what does it look like? and two, who should it benefit? I think we need a radical restructuring of the way that the United States deals with refugees. By and large, there has not been a refugee crisis in the Americas, so that includes you know North and South America and Central America. Uh, In a very long time. I think we all know where some of the more recent refugee crises have come from. It's been the Middle East. uh, It's been Africa and to an extent Asia. And so there is this idea that, you know, we are somehow helping by by bringing people thousands of miles away to the United States, instead of resettling them somewhere closer to home where more people could be helped. Um, someone who has talked about this to a great deal, and I'm actually about to, um, to take his his analogy that he's used is Mark Krikorian from the Center for Immigration Studies, and he has used the analogy of there's a group of people who are drowning in in the ocean, and you come up you come across them. What makes more sense? Do you give all of them a life raft, which keeps them afloat, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to drown, they're not going to die, or do you give one of them the keys to the boat that you are on and leave everyone else to kind of fend for themselves in the water? Um, Because that's essentially how our current refugee resettlement program works, is that instead of helping, I think the number is about 11 or 12 people in their region, by you know, by providing um, food aid, by providing money to to the countries that do take them in, that kind of thing. Um, instead of doing that and helping more people overall, what we're currently doing is giving a golden ticket to to one of those people and, and giving you know bringing them to the United States, resettling them um, in, in the United States, and that's all all good and noble. But in terms of actually helping people, helping people that are going through you know, the collapse of a state government who are going, who have faced genocide, these kinds of things that we associate with, with refugees, it doesn't really do anything, you know, you're helping a very small number of people. And so I think when I say we need to re, we need to look at how we evaluate refugees in these countries, in, the, in our country, what I think we need to do is really use resettlement as an absolute last resort. The, the resources that our country spends on refugee resettlement could go so far and help so many more people if it was directed in terms of food aid, monetary aid. Um, you know, maybe the resources uh, of you know the U.S. military stationed overseas, um, the way that the National Guard works. You know, domestically helping in, in events like that. Um, I think that goes a lot longer to help more people than just bringing. A handful of people over to the United States, whether the number is 15,000, or whether it's 62,000, it still doesn't matter, because there's still mm-hmm. millions of people who if they had the choice, would would come to the US in a second. So I think that's really the number one thing is we need to look at not I think the number is very arbitrary. And that's kind of where a lot of our modern politics says oh you know trump yeah, lowered right. it to 15,000 and biden's taking it to 62 that's not the issue the issue i think is the amount of aid that we can give to local to local governments overseas to help them either resettle people or or deal with a surge of people um, kind of like the european union did with turkey Following the, the the civil war in Syria, I, th- I think that is is really where the conversation should go, um, instead of just arguing about numbers and where they should be resettled in the U.S. and things like that.
1: Right, and I think that's a that's a really good point. In fact, we did some analysis on that a few years ago, and found that in most situations, it's ninety percent cheaper and much more effective to care for refugees in what we typically found was the first safe country they could arrive at, versus importing them to the United States. The other thing we found is that when you do that, you can help a more diverse group of people. Right now, those coming to the United States are those who are wealthy enough to get here. Now in the United States, those might not you know, particularly be wealthy individuals, but in their home countries, these are the individuals who should be able to go back to their country and help solve some of the issues that they're facing instead of simply leaving and resettling elsewhere. So what we found is that if you create agreements or create incentives for some of these neighboring countries to take in refugees, you know, individuals that speak the language and could contribute right away to the economies of the neighboring countries, It's better for the refugees. They're not being transplanted to a place they have no clue about, they haven't been to before, they can't speak the language, etc. It's better for American taxpayers because we don't immediately put them on welfare rolls, which is typically the case when they come to the United States. In fact, there's a governmental program that connects new refugees to welfare programs. Now, interestingly, there's not one that connects them to jobs, um, but there is one that connects them to welfare programs. So it's better for us in terms of our pocketbook And again, it's better for the situations in those countries because more people can be taken care of. They're closer to home so that they can go back and help improve the situation at home. Or once the situation improves, they have more incentive to return and contribute to their own country, to their own culture. Now... Just to be frankly honest, you know, like you mentioned, everything we do is not even a drop in the bucket. It's not really making an impact on a global stage. At this point, the refugee program we have is nothing more than a self-righteous pat on our own back on the international scale. Because we're doing very little to help improve the situation in those countries, to help the governments uh, get back on their feet, to... Improve the situation we're offering no incentive to those host countries to end whatever corrupt behaviors. They may be partaking in to cause a refugee exodus and Instead what we end up doing is we just decide, you know, what's a number we should bring into the United States? We do that we celebrate say that we did something good and then go on to ignore the root problems and I think that's that's really unfortunate And uh, something that we, of course, need to rectify and and try to think about this topic on a more global scale, how we can actually have a positive long-term
2: impact. And Spencer, that even comes to um, another point that, that you just reminded me of is addressing the role of the refugee resettlement agencies in the United States. Um, I'm not sure our, you know, listeners or, 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 even, you know, the average person is aware of how much our government actually kind of delegates the task of settling these people mm-hmm. in the U.S. to outside groups, whether they are religious organizations or immigrant advocacy groups. You know, there, there are there's a I forget the exact number, but there's an exact number registered with the State Department who essentially bid. On mm-hmm. you know on government contracts to resettle people so for them it's actually extremely profitable to 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 keep the numbers high because for each refugee they exactly. settle they're essentially getting a check from the government um, and that is that is very problematic when when you have essentially uh, and, and to be frank I'm surprised that Democrats for as much as they hate privatization of government services <laughs> uh, I'm shocked that they, have gone along with this instead of allowing the federal government or some arm of the state department to do this. Um, and it's, it's created a lot of issues. You know, there's a lot of States that have said, you know, we do not want refugees resettled here. Uh, they get into lawsuits with these groups. And then next thing, you know, the federal government is stepping in on behalf of these organizations. And it's just a, a nightmare because you bring these people here and then if a city votes in a referendum and says, we do not want these people here, who is uh, this random NGO to tell them, well, tough luck, because we have a contract from the State Department. And, and that's pretty much how it works right now. And I think that's another thing that we have to look into is, you know, why are we allowing our, you know, why are we allowing pretty much private organizations to determine where where refugees are going against in in many cases the will of, of the people in those localities
1: that that's a really good point and i think something in i mean that we should bring up is that you know these localities are not necessarily rejecting refugees because oh we hate foreigners as is often accused but we found that there are a number of you know you're talking small cities 10 20 30,000 people who because of refugee resettlement from the federal government and from these uh, organizations that you talk about that are supposedly nonprofits but make a great profit off of resettling refugees are resettling them in these in these small jurisdictions and it has a massive impact on city planning on school systems on tax programs in fact we found that some of these school systems have as many as 12 different languages now spoken by students in their in their schools and that's extremely difficult it puts a lot of stress on teachers or in worst case scenarios you're seeing these schools firing english-speaking teachers in order to bring in bilingual teachers or to import teachers from somewhere else that can speak the language of these refugees you know what ends up happening is You know, you have fewer English-speaking teachers that are addressing the needs of citizens and more individuals that are being forced to, you know, they're forcing that budget to these refugee programs. And again, they had no way of planning for it. They get very little notice. Sometimes it's not even a month that, hey, there are, you know, 300 refugees are going to be resettled in your city. Tough luck. Deal with it. And it's just not fair. You know, I I know that a lot of these jurisdictions, we've heard from a lot of these cities, they've said, hey, we'd be happy to help out if you let us plan this. Let us know that, hey, next year, two years, three years from now, we're hoping to resettle a few refugees in in your city, and they're happy to help. Or they can say, we've already got a large population that speaks a particular language, so we can resettle those refugees into our jurisdictions and be able to help them right away. But at this point, so far, the federal government's just like, yeah, no, tough luck. We're gonna give you whatever we feel like giving you. We're gonna resettle whoever we want to resettle there, and you have to deal with it. And like you mentioned, you know these these organizations, it's it's nothing but a profit machine to them. And I don't think it should come as a surprise to anyone that most of the groups that just Hounded the Biden administration and, and attacked the Biden administration for keeping the refugee resettlement numbers low. Were the groups that are that stand to make, you know, millions upon millions of dollars thanks to this being this cap being increased. So again, it comes down to a situation where it's not that experts said that this should happen, that it would make the world a better place if we increase the refugee cap. It's more that. Hey, our donors are saying they want to increase the refugee cap and they want more money. And so they're going to hound us about it and we're just going to cave into what they want.
2: Yeah. I mean, when you're getting paid, you know, when you're getting a check from the federal government for every refugee that you resettle, you obviously have an incentive to resettle as many refugees as you can. And I, I think that speaks to how broken the current system is. The current system, you know, it, obviously, I, I have, and I said earlier, I think a, a perfect system would be that we allocate a lot of, instead of paying these groups in the U.S. to do this and helping only a handful of people, essentially, we should be using that money to help significantly more people closer to where the crisis is or closer to where the issues are actually occurring. Because right now, it's what we're doing right now is just silly. And like you said, it's, it's more just to pat ourselves on the back and claim that we have some sort of moral high ground even when if you really look into the issue we don't
1: right right it's it's nothing but a self-righteous endeavor that just so happens to transfer money from the federal government to you know an ally's pocket and unfortunately while that whole corrupt system is going on there are millions of individuals all around the world who are suffering that we could be helping and that's really a tragic thing
0: I think you guys hit the nail on the head. It definitely is one of those self-righteous pat on the back. It's a vested interest for these um, companies and organizations who are getting paid to resettle refugees. And it's honestly virtue signaling. They're saying, oh, hey, look at us. We resettle all these people. Look at how righteous we are, how much better we are than all of you. But it's not about caring for the person. It's not about um, wanting to set these people up for success. And it makes a lot of sense of what we're seeing with the crisis currently as well as just come in illegally, come in as a refugee, We'll help the some people that we can. We'll give you a little bit of money, put you on welfare, you know, so we can get your vote or get more checks. It's all about a vested interest of, and it comes down to money rather than, hey, let's make sure that these people are being taken care of, that these people are set up for success. Um, and like you both were talking about, we can help way more people if we were to reframe how we address the refugee resettlement program. If we readdress how we're meant to um, see the refugee crisis around the world. Is it really about helping people? And if that's the case, let's find a better way to do so by having people resettle in countries that are closer, providing that aid in money, water, uh, monetary funds, whatever it may be, rather than, hey, come to the U.S. so it makes us look good.
1: Exactly. And I think that's a good point as well. You know, we're not setting these individuals that we do bring into the United States up for success. You know, as we mentioned earlier, A large number of these, a very large number of these individuals end up being on welfare long term, meaning greater than five years. Most of them make very little money. In fact, we found in that five year period, most of them went from earning an average of $12 an hour up to maybe close to 13 after five years. That's not much of a pay increase. We've also found that children who enter the United States via the refugee program typically perform below average in school for the duration of their public school experience. So it's, it's really a tragic situation where individuals are being brought into the United States, but they aren't being given the tools they need to succeed. So we're spending billions of dollars on this program every year. Uh, we're making organizations rich uh, to resettle them but we're really not doing anything to solve this conflict on a global scale. We're not doing anything to set up those that come to the United States for success. And overall, that's just kind of a a tragic thing. And, you know, that may be kind of a tragic note to end on, but uh, that's all the time we have for today. So we hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and perhaps learned something new. As a reminder, we'll be releasing a new episode every other Monday. Now, for any of our new listeners out there, Check out our series on your favorite platforms such as Google, Apple, and Spotify to see what other topics we've been discussing that may interest you. In fact, we have more than 30 episodes uploaded right now that cover important topics that impact your daily life like remittances, DACA, gang violence, and many other issues that you can easily find uh, from our podcast pages. We hope that each and every one of you are continuing to stay safe and sound. And until next time, this has been Understanding Immigration presented by FAIR.